travel, wherever you're at in the world, whatever you're up to, uh, we're talking music, we're talking culture, we're talking an American that's gone through the, um, is now in the music game, but understands the VC world, understands digital, and uh, in the, a very extreme sort of environment where content can go anywhere in a million seconds extremely quickly. It is uh, very cool to start seeing uh, more crew that are, young bucks on the come up that are obviously creating platforms and enabling others to share it, especially with a platform like Dash, understands the music game better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Ren Stern uh, from Frank. Um, Frank Renaissance? Renaissance? How do you Frank, Ren- Frank Renaissance. Frank Renaissance. It's, you, you it's nice to be here. <laughs> in in um, Japanese, you say Renaissance. So it all, it all works out. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. So, so Ren, I actually... Uh, tried to study a little bit of Japanese when I was younger and I used to live in Japan uh, in, in my snowboard years for a little bit in a wow. place called near Matsumoto called Norikura Kogen uh, in Nagano, nice. and it was mm-hmm. very cool and the culture was amazing and I absolutely loved it. Um, it's early over there in yeah, Japan yeah. at the moment. I believe it's like 6am. Uh, so I, I'm imagining the worst meetings for you potentially are when you have New York calls. I'm imagining. Yeah, the, the New York time difference is tough and when you try to get Europe on, it's somebody has to, to suffer and all that, but it comes with the territory, so it's all good. I, I get it. So maybe let's start here for a second. You don't seem, for those who are obviously listening, listening and you can't see his pretty face, you don't seem like an old man at all to be doing this whole VC game <laughs> in, in, the music, in the music mix. Um, how, do, how does it feel waking up not being, being, I guess, a bit of a young buck coming up in the scene? In a, in a world that's now extremely globalized through digitization and now with, with money and content and everything that's rolling within it, you're in a pretty, um, I don't think there's probably too many like you. So how does that feel? Let's start there. <laughs> you know, I think on the on the music side, you know, it's uh, a lot of the people that I'm interacting with on, on the Japan side are actually, actually are pretty, pretty young. Um, you know, I think the more sort of ambitious, um, a&R, A&R guys who want to get their artists overseas, even though, you know, there isn't much of a precedent for it. You know, they, they don't have a lot of opportunities like this, uh, especially what Frank Renaissance is offering, which is, um, you know, bringing them collaboration opportunities with U.S. artists. They don't they don't get a lot of that. And so, you know, I think it's, um, you know, the fact that, you know, I, I am young, I think, is, is advantageous there in that sense. Um, and interestingly enough, on the B.C. side, um, B.C. in Japan looks very different than B.C., in the US, um, you know, Silicon Valley sort of uh, young managers, you can see, you know, mid to late 20s, early 30s, you know, you get you get a lot of those, uh, a lot of those guys. But in Japan, it's very much a, a suited and booted thing. You know, it's 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 very uh, heavily, heavily corporate VC driven. And so, um, you know, a VC looks very different in Japan, the States. And so in that sense, um, I, I am very much on the on the young side. But again, you know, my nexus to things like sort of the, the stuff that I'm doing on the on the music side, um, you know, being on the ground level with how sort of music, culture, and tech are evolving, um, you know, I think puts me at a distinct advantage there as well. So let's, maybe I should have done a bit of a better job. Uh, explain what Frank Renaissance does, obviously, based in sure. the music game and helping with the global sort of piece, but how do, how do you fit into the ecosystem currently or, and what was the genesis? Sure, to sort of- sure. I can, I can roll it back to the very, very beginning. If, if that is that is helpful exactly on the on the mean streets of, of the west village we're not which are not so mean actually interestingly enough but um but I grew up born and raised in new york uh, my mom is japanese uh from the south of japan uh in fukuoka which is part of kyushu in the in the southernmost prefecture uh, but i grew up going back and forth 
between the US and Japan. Grew up a big hip hop fan always. My uh, godmother, interestingly enough, used to work at the Apollo Theater, which you, you may be familiar with. Um, and uh, my, my first concert back in the day, I was in seventh, I was in seventh grade, my first hip hop concert. It's the only Japanese person you probably see for three, four blocks, for the three, four blocks radius around the Apollo at that time. But uh, was if you're if you're a big hip hop fan at all, it's Trick Daddy, Juvenile, Ti, Fabulous, and Fat Joe, who were the big hit makers at the time. And uh, Ja Rule and Jada Kiss came on at the end to do New York, which was which was a big hit. And um, yeah, when that came yeah, out, yeah, it was like, it was like the Alicia <laughs> Keys. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, um, you know, always a big hip hop fan, always a big basketball fan and player. I grew up playing at the Cage, West Fourth Street. Um, in, in New York and, um, you know, um, went to, went to, went to college in the States, uh, was working in the ad industry for a few years, actress, actually, interestingly enough, in, in New York, um, second agency I was at, um, sent me over to Japan to help with a, with a global client. Um, they needed a, a bilingual person to work on, work on the, work on the client and, um, uh, ended up staying, um, and sort of a, a few, few iterations career-wise since then I've ended up where I, where I am today. Um, but um, in terms of the genesis of Frank Renaissance, you know, I, I got here and didn't really know much about what was going on in hip hop in Japan. Um, and, you know, I, I wish I had a more romantic, um, romantic meeting with Japanese hip hop to start, but uh, really just found it on YouTube and went down a wormhole of, of, of several days, hours, days and hours spent just watching, listening to Japanese hip hop and, you know, I was really just impressed by the by the richness and depth and, and diversity within the scene, and um, you know, found a concert of of an artist that I was listening to. Um, went to the show. I get to the I get to the venue, and well, the artist uh, who was performing was sort of smoking a cigarette, sitting on the stoop, and I go up to him, and I was like, "Are are you Wenny Wenny Dacilio, who's a half Japanese, half Filipino artist?" And he goes, "Yeah, matter of fact, I am." And um, you know, we have a we have a good time at the show and, and we become friends. And um, an interesting thing about the Japanese hip hop scene is that it's very, very, it's a very tight knit community. And, um, you know, they're all hopping on each other's features through, you know, DMing each other on Instagram. Um, and so, you know, by becoming friends with one artist sort of by proxy, I became, you know, close with the broader hip hop community. And, um, you know, through my, uh, yeah, through my work inside of Frank Renaissance, um, over the last few years, I've been working with uh, Carnegie Hall, um, of course, classical music, uh, classical music uh, venue in the states, um, working to uh, promote their education pro- music education programs in Japan. Have also worked with some uh, with a painter in Japan, uh, getting him some notoriety overseas. Uh, produced a show, a single day show for him at Lincoln Center in New York um, in 2019 or so, but have been sort of broadly involved in the sort of cultural exchange between the US and Japan. And also, you know, through the, through the VC work uh, that I do, we're investing in companies in the US and helping them find markets in Japan and Asia. And so, you know, have both from a business perspective um, as well as sort of an arts and culture perspective have been involved sort of bridging the gap between the US and Japan. And so while all this is happening, um, getting very sort of deep within the, the hip hop scene here, um, and, you know, started to think about, you know, how can I leverage my tools and my network that I've developed to try to help these artists who want to take that first step outside of Japan. And, you know, the artists kind of fall into two categories. There's one where 
they want to be Travis Scott on the Coachella stage. And, you know, they, they, um, you know, they know that that's what they want to do. They want to do it yesterday and, you know, whatever you can do, it's the next thing. Um, but Japan itself is a huge market in and of itself. And so interestingly enough, second biggest music market in the world. Um, but you don't have a huge set of artists making it overseas, but you know, with this hip hop, um, with the hip hop genre, especially with hip hop, of course, having so much roots in, in the States um, and global, yeah, outside of Japan, you know, there's there's a group of artists where, you know, they're happy with what they're doing in Japan, but they also understand that their natural extension of their success is doing something outside Japan. And so, you know, I would say it's probably 70 to 80 percent the latter, actually, interestingly enough, and, and 20 percent the former. But I think part of that is because there isn't a huge amount of precedent for Japanese artists really having having huge success um, overseas. And so, um, you know, I, my co-founder, Frankie, who's a, a buddy of mine from, from college, interestingly enough, is sort of the um, expert on everything culture. Um, and so I've been talking about, you know, how do we how do we amplify what's happening um, here in the States? Uh, or sorry, here in Japan, should I say, in, in, in the States and then sort of on a, in a global environment. And so um, I formally launched the Frank Renaissance Entity last June. Um, as a record label and production studio, really more than anything, curating these Japanese artists to a global audience. Um, you know, I think you could take a track and distribute it, promote it, promote it overseas all you want, but you know, the cultural and language barriers are really hard to overcome. And so, you know, how can we create these artists, uh, curate, sorry, these artists through, whether it be through collaborations with US artists or we do, you know, broader campaigns where we might collaborate with brands and designers or want to plug into a moment culture that's happening in the U.S. globally, you know, to really create multiple access points um, to these artists so that we can shrink that cultural distance. And so, you know, we, we've, um, you know, just start, we put out our first project last year. Um, we actually, interestingly enough, we, uh, this is a hoodie merch that we uh, <laughs> produced for that, for that uh, last, uh, for last year's release. Uh, yeah, Osteo Loiko was on that. We had uh, the producer of that track, KM, was actually, uh, today, the most streamed Japanese hip hop producer and beat maker. Um, we also had uh, the, there were a lot of friends who came in on this project, but uh, my um, uh, closest friend from growing up in, in New York is also Japanese. I call him the Stephen A. Smith of, of Japan. He, uh, he actually, he, he started out, he had a YouTube channel teaching uh, English through hip hop to Japanese audiences. Um, had gotten some looks from some independent labels on the Japan side, uh, but decided to go full full MBA and now has a YouTube channel with about 100,000 subscribers, um, sort of doing ESPN style analysis of, of basketball, but wanted to do more hip hop, uh, wanted to do rap, rap more. And so he came onto the track. We had um, a Japanese singer named Lolise but Cold, who just released her first EP, um, had the, actually interestingly enough, he spent a lot of time in Australia, uh, not New Zealand, but, um, He's the former beatboxing champion of Japan who also came onto the beat. Um, and so we had all those artists come onto the track. Um, my cousin, who incidentally uh, did the uh, album release clothing design for Lil Wayne's funeral album last year, um, sort of uh, made the anthrop... Uh, I'm not sure if there's a verb for this, but it, in essence took the anthropomorphized, I don't think that's a word by any means, but in essence took the, took the uh, rappers and reimagined them as animals. We put them on the clothing. We paired up with a Japanese uh, TikTok dance group, made the animals into dancing animals, used that as sort of the YouTube visualizer for the track. And so, you know, creating 
you know, of course, creating a campaign that resonates here in Japan, but by collaborating with Lorian, um, you know, who, who did, who's done design work for a lot of big US, sort of collabs with a lot of US brands, you know, we can create those entry points for a global audience. Um, and so, you know, we found, especially in this early stages, you know, I think, I think a big piece of it is that hip hop is, you know, a genre in Japan that's really started to come up sort of this generation of these last two years, I think driven by a few different factors. So one is, you know, hip hop itself has grown up through sort of social media outside of this sort of traditional Japanese, um, Japanese music ecosystem, which is very much, you know, CD stills make up a large portion of Japanese music <laughs> still today, interestingly enough. And, you know, it's a lot of it's still tied back to sales of the karaoke box and hip hop, you know, for better, for worse, um, does not translate to those things. Um, and also, you know, hip hop by nature tends to be a rebellion to some extent. And so, you know, Japan, you have 12 national TV channels that still get like close to 80% reach, which is, I mean, it just looks so different than, than anywhere else in the world. Um, and so, you know, getting on the big sort of national TV shows, which you're, you're sort of put in the same context as sort of the J-pop idol groups, um, and then the karaoke box and CDs, that's sort of the traditional music ecosystem. And this generation grew up through streaming and through YouTube and, and, uh, that in social media, and that's how sort of they, they gained popularity. And so, um, you know, I think, and then also the big difference between, sort of the hip hop, you know, Japan had one sort of hip hop boom, as they call it, in sort of the mid to late 90s or so as well. Um, and what's different about then and now is that hip hop is now the biggest music genre in the world. And so, um, you know, you have those, that, that sort of, um, those sort of factors, but hip hop in Japan today is still very much an emerging genre. I mean, it's at sort of the day one of, the, of becoming mainstream, I would say today. And so the investment that a Japanese label has to make in a genre that isn't big yet in Japan, not, not quite as big as it could be in Japan. And then to make that a double the investment by taking that same artist overseas is a, not necessarily something that they're built to do, but also sort of double the risk involved. And so, you know, us being sort of this dual native, you know, we got people in the U S got people in Japan, understand how both cultures work to maintain authenticity over here while sort of creating access points to a global audience. Um, has been we've gotten some some good reception on the Japan side so far. So apologies, I, I was long winded and I, I uh, went went all over the place there, but uh, that's sort of where we stand here. The um so you know you, you're basically creating a, a bridge of culture yeah. between art, and music, and whatever else between yeah. Japan and, and America. Mm -hmm. You know the the branding of obviously K-pop is uh, it stands for Korean pop, right? That yeah, yeah, obviously. exactly. Now, yeah. what is the branding of Japanese rap? That yeah. It's got, does it have a, a brand or a name or is it a movement or what's the, how is it I guess, yeah. identified in place from foreigners looking into it? Yeah. So I, I think it depends on what J Japanese rap itself has a few sub genres within it. Okay. Um, you know, you have the very sort of, um, you know, Japanese sort of gangster rap as you would, the closest equivalent as you would call it sort of the Japanese rap dogma, um, you know, which has sort of, carried on over generations is very much sort of cool. I want to stay underground. I, you know, the second I hit the pop stage, it sort of goes against sort of my, my tribe called values. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And I honestly, their rhymes are dope. And so, you know, not, nothing against that, but they 
are, you know, it's baggy, baggy sweatpants, baggy jeans, and you could kind of put them anywhere between the 90s to the 2020s. And, you know, you might not be surprised. Um, and so there, there's that sort of group. There's also a sort of, and, and there's some overlap a little bit with sort of this lo-fi extension, where there's also sort of a, a bifurcation there where you have, you know, a lot of the similar beats, and a lot of similar influences, but they're not so worried about sort of going into the pop sort of bleeding into pop music. And so, you know, see some collaborations with more pop singers. Um, and those those artists look more, I'm just trying to think of a, a typical aesthetic, but, um, you know, you they could be sort of um, cool Harajuku kids, but you wouldn't see them wearing bathing ape and things like that. They're not sort of, a, uh, sort of as pop influenced. And then you sort of have this, um, you know, grew up listening to Migos Generation, which is, you know, very much you can you can see the American hip hop artists and, and you know, see the clear, clear one to one connection. Um, but, you know, they've, they've also developed their own community and culture. And, you know, they've also, um, you know, they've come out of, uh, you know, they've seen each other grow in essence. They're not they're not granted. They do listen to a lot of hip hop in the U.S. They listen to just as much or potentially more in Japan. And so, you know, there you can you can see the similarities, but they've sort of built their own built their own culture and, and community. And, and so there's that aesthetic looks, you know, it's, it's a little more flashy. Um, uh, you know, you got, yeah, you know, some, they, they rock a lot of dating ape today um, still. And so that's sort of the, I guess, the few different lanes that you might see aesthetically. And when you're talking, you're coming from yeah. America, and, yeah. you know, you obviously go to, go to Japan. When you're interacting with all the artists, do they see, how do they see the, the world of the optics is this let me blow up and get to the states is this let me go global on spotify is this i'm gonna stay in my, my town like what does success look like for a japanese rap artist in 2021 specifically yeah you know that that's a really good question i think especially considering that there's probably in terms of you know any sort of remotely sustained mainstream success for japanese hip-hop artists outside of japan there's only really one example um, and it's a rapper named Ko who um, was on a track with uh, Keith Ape called Itchy Ma, which is a big hit in the mid 2010s. Um, and sort of on the back of that, did some did some work with 88 Rising and and did some tracks over um, overseas. But you know, outside of that, you know, he, you know, not there. There isn't really any sort of example of mainstream success. And so, you know, how how I see it is, you know, for the single individual artist, you know, the likelihood of them gaining massive popularity in the States on their, on their, if, if they're moving on their own, it, it, it's really tough because it's, it's hard to understand the context. And so our goal is to sort of kind of bring the whole genre and community at once over. Um, and, you know, there may be some artists that sort of have, have bigger success and they end up on the, the larger festival stages and there's some that may not. Um, but in any case, plugging into the reputation and sort of brand equity um, and also scale of the U.S. hip hop market, they're able to gain a broader audience, whether that be in the States, whether that be in Japan. I mean, more, I mean if anything, you know, there's, there'll be a significant impact on their popularity in Japan just by seeing their success overseas. And then maybe that extending into greater Asia as well. Um, and so, you know, we'll, you know, I think it's, it's largely proven in terms of what, what, you know, massive success looks like. But I think, you know, my personal goal in all this is for, 
you know, somebody having their, you know, hip hop playlist and it being commonplace, not novel to be scrolling around and, and just playing an, a track with a Japanese hip hop artist on it. Well, if you look at um, culture, obviously from, from America, a lot of American artists now are jumping on, you know, Spanish beats and collabs mm-hmm. and mix ups with the bad bunnies of the world and whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the, so Drake's probably a good example. And then on the other side, and obviously I don't understand the, the music world as much as yourself, but then I'm watching or listening to a different and you've basically got then Drake on like a UK drill beat and he's mm-hmm. got like some English twang and then he's doing this other thing. So there's clearly crossover between the American mm-hmm. markets to down South and to South America and then clearly going over the pond the mm-hmm. other way. Um, the only one that's probably come in, which I don't think was not so much an industry, but maybe just the one hit wonder gone crazy was obviously Gangnam style from um, that came over that way. You, I'm imagining you don't want a one-hit wonder where it becomes kind of like the um, a Gangnam style. You actually want career and legacy and, and more of a genre, not a one-hit wonder, right? Like, do you see? Yeah. Because obviously, when they can't sort of expand it, like, how do you get through what you hope the future will be when you're mixing a language that people don't understand, but in a market that um, you know loves a good beat? Yeah, yeah, no, that that's a that's a good question. Yeah, in terms of one hit wonder, that's not that's not what we're going for. And I think, you know, we could try to get a major feature, but to be honest, it's not particularly capital efficient to pay for a massive A <laughs> list US artist for for a single track. And you know, I think our goal is to tell you know is to tell the story of the Japanese artists. And I think you know what we feel is that there there is a there is an interest in Japan. From from the U.S. side, but but a lot of the depictions today are, are highly exoticized for one, um, and also you know the type of Japan that people sort of interact with is sort of very much fits within the sort of weird Japan to some extent <laughs> category. Um, and so you know, interestingly enough, there's a public-private Japanese fund called the Cool Japan Fund that that promotes sort of Japanese culture and, and business overseas. You know, they do a lot of stuff with anime and sort of tea ceremonies and, and things like that. But, you know, in our mind, this is the real cool Japan. You know, this is, um, you know, and I think, especially as you think of things that Japan is sort of top sort of world-class in the world in, um, you know, something that definitely comes to mind to people who are involved in this is sort of street streetwear. It's something that is, um, you know, but, but, but at the same time, there isn't the same sort of intersectionality with hip hop and so, you know, hip hop doesn't sort of by proxy make it overseas. I mean, you saw some of that happen with the teriyaki boys in the mid mid 2000s, where sort of that convergence between hip hop and hip hop and Japanese fashion really made it on a on a larger stage. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think for us, it's it's around sort of creating, you know, maintaining this relevance, telling the story. Um, you know, for example, um, this is a we have a, a sort of a show concept in, in production that we're, we're calling No English Menu um, as the working title. The idea being, um, you know, everybody in the world loves Japanese food, of course. Um, and so you have Japanese rappers take you on sort of the off the beaten path, local food tours of Japan um, to, to introduce their story through food. And, you know, I think that sort of, and, and, sort of, and for lack of a better term, to sort of live out this gringo fantasy um on in in japan through uh through food and so you know i think um you know that sort of storytelling you know you're so for example rapper takes you to his local ramen shop where he knows the grandma who's worked there for 
she's the fifth generation ramen shop owner episode exactly exactly i mean you can you can you can imagine it very much in a western context but it's not necessarily how a japanese you know a japanese sort of content producer would necessarily introduce the the japanese hip-hop genre and so you know i think figure out ways to tell the story in a way that's that's you know really highly curated i think is our our goal in terms of to your point you know not just having a track that hits once but to keep the conversation going and to create peak the interest and you know our thought is too that you know people have a genuine interest in japan it's just not shown to them as much in a way that that might be quite as easy to understand um because of the large sort of language and cultural barriers too no i get, I get it yeah. now the um i want to talk about the tech side for a second sure understand the vc game with this when you take a vc lens approach of music in japan that the, the goal is to go global in terms of the commercialization how do you see that um playing out to fruition if i guess clearly probably not too many people have done it before yeah and then you're, you're in this a very unique situation <laughs> where you're american that grew up in new york and now you're mm-hmm. in, now you're in japan plugged in but you understand how the money works for it is it mm-hmm. um you know obviously gives you an advantage understanding a whole bunch mm-hmm. more of the the sort of tech side that many others mm-hmm. uh, don't how do you feel that this ecosystem works for or against kind of local artists in this world of crazy big tech stuff well, like what's your take t- take on on tech you know i i think you know of course streaming itself is is not a huge revenue stream for for any artists at all and and what's interesting for us at frank renaissance today is that we have developed this sort of uh this platform and in, in label without bookings in essence and so it's not something that we've really factored into any of our modeling for today and so you know we're trying to push you know push push the envelope isn't, isn't quite the right term but but really um you know think about what are the diversity of revenue streams that we can create for artists, especially when you don't have bookings and streaming royalties are, are going to be highly limited, though they are, of course, recurring revenue, which is a, which is a good thing. Um, so, and I think that's the role that tech plays that, you know, how do you diversify revenue streams? How do you create new opportunities for artists um, to monetize their likeness and their IP? And so, you know, whether that be, you know, we're currently working on an execution right now where we're developing a piece of merchandise that we're working with a Japanese designer to do that we're also going to make into a 3D 3D item that will then be uh, animated with sort of to the track and launched as an NFT sort of thing. And so, you know, that is a entirely new way to, you know, use the sync license and also um, create new monetization for um for the artists um or you know there's also you know this whole world of you know not not to dig too too deep into this nft piece but you know nft publishing as well as a way to by creating scarcity um by you know by releasing sort of single authentic versions of your track that you're able to create new monetization and so um and then also you have just new new media environments right um you know i think the the virtual concert environment is still a bit immature. Um, it's still developing. But when you think about the sort of logical end conclusion, especially when you know, I don't think concerts are going away ultimately. But in essence, with with virtual concert experience, you're able to have 
you know, five times the number of people in a in a concert, or maybe much, much more, if anything, a hundred times the attendance um, to create new monetization for artists. Um, and also you think about gaming environments, it's just entirely a different experience and a new way to interact with your fans as well. And so I think, you know, it's, it's engagement, it's new monetization, um, and it's necessary, especially when you think about, um, you know, where sort of artists are being you know, squeezed to some extent today. So going on that path for a second, um, COVID hit, there's no Coachella's, 99% of all the, I mean, 100% of all the shows everywhere stopped a whole bunch of, you know, in the music game, it's clear the top 1% or top 10% take 90% of the profits mm -hmm. and the other 90% really rely on those little tour gigs to get the grand here, two grand there, 10 grand there, whatever. How have they, like what percentage of musicians have actually been able to, how have they made their money since COVID? Like how have they, uh, have a lot of them just literally dropped off because they aren't gigging? Like DJs aren't playing, people aren't doing it. Like what's the true impact of, of COVID's devastation to the events and nightlifes and, and gigs and touring sort of scene? Like what, how bad has it been? You know, it, it's been really, really tough. I mean, I think, um, you know, it, it, especially, you know, I, I would, I would think on the, on the U S side, potentially even more so than, than Japan. I mean, I think with Japan in terms of the hip hop artists, yes, gigging is significant, but to be honest, a lot of the hip hop artists today, you know, along with some of their gigging are also, you know, getting revenues through sponsorships with a lot of the fashion brands. So, so within Japan, they've done a really good job of sort of, uh, I guess embracing this intersectionality between streetwear and fashion and, and hip hop, and it's largely social media driven. You know that ecosystem makes a lot of sense. And you know these artists are not selling out you know fifty thousand, hundred thousand person shows yet today. Um, though they are doing, you know, they are doing five to ten thousand. So it's not it's not like they aren't getting people to their shows. It's just not not quite at that scale yet. And so you know what we've seen actually is that you know the U.S. artists because of this all of this going on have been, you know, really interested in working with Frank Renaissance because it's an entirely new market for them, you know, and especially, you know, in, you know, in a world without bookings, it's new monetization for one. And also, um, you know, especially in a COVID world today, what's the difference between doing a track with a New York artist and LA artist and a New York and Tokyo artist, if everybody's recording remotely anyway. Um, and if you have somebody like us sort of holding, your hand through the collaboration process. Um, and also, you know, to a large extent too, being able to, you know, put together the structure that works for everybody involved um, is, has been, you know, has been a valuable opportunity, um, especially on the US side. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, been, it's been really tough, but I also think it's, it's given an opportunity for people to innovate, you know. I, you know, the fact that this sort of, this, this sort of digital concert economy you see, you know, Things like Wave XR doing really cool, cool stuff. Um, you know, you see this sort of, you know, this this new economy being created. Um, you know, I think in the short term it's tough, but for the artists that are able to, you know, get through these these couple of years, I think there's there's a really sort of wide range of opportunities that sit sort of at the end of that that path. So, with the artists pre-COVID to post-COVID, yeah. what percentage split? Do you think it's going to be split between all the different revenue streams? Like, how big mm -hmm. do you think it's going to change, and what kind of what average is like? Say, like a Drake is it fifty percent streaming, fifty percent touring, some merch, mm -hmm. and shit? like, well, like how does the where does the money sort of come from? 
Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I think streaming still is going to be a, a very very low percentage comparatively. But I do think you just yeah. If 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 I were you know to be put on <laughs> to be put on the spot here to put it in percentages um, specifically, you know, I would say if it's you know. 30, 30 to 30 to 40% or yeah, I, I would say potentially if you think about the diversity of, of the digital streaming, you know, the di so not digital streaming, uh, but the digital monetization opportunities between some of these digital goods economies and virtual experiences, you know, if that makes, you know, 15 to 20% of an artist's revenues, that's pretty significant. Um, you know, that's, that's huge. And if you have, you know, say, you know, 20, 25, percent is 25 30 percent is sponsorships and emerge and then sort of what's that so about 60 percent and the remaining you know 30 to 40 percent is is touring and then you have you know five to ten percent be streaming you know i think that's that's huge if, if you're able to create i mean i think that's probably takes some time to get to that point maybe that's maybe that's a a, a 20 25 20 20 uh 20 30 sort of state artists, to some extent lost 90 80 to 90 percent of the revenue in the last exactly year. exactly but but you know, I, I'm saying after sort of that sort of percentage split is after sort of you come out of the, the pandemic, hopefully, where you, where you have actual bookings. Um, you know, today, of course, bookings are, are close to zero. And, you know, you have sort of merch revenues and some of these digital experience revenues being a larger percentage. But, you know, I think if, if, if at the, sort of the conclusion of all of this, you have sort of these digital experience, digital goods revenues being, you know, 15 to 20 percent of an artist's revenue stream. Yeah, you know, that's huge, and that's that's a great thing. And you know, I think it's also a great thing for fans because those digital ex experiences a lot of the time give you know more opportunities for engagement with with the artists as well. I get it. Um, can I, can I go to the, the artist side for a second? So mm -hmm. there's been a lot of talk over, I guess, years and years with with what's getting. It feels like there's more of a um, a battle brewing around when it comes to artists and their masters mm -hmm. now. What's your take been on um, who should or shouldn't owe them? Is it, do you feel that the industry is being broken when it comes to stuff like this? Like, what's your take at a macro on how the music industry has been run when it when it comes to actually taking care of the, the artists? Because for years, it kind of feels like stuff's starting to come out more and more and more of all the bad deals and all this and the 360 mm -hmm. bad and they've got the masters this and they can't buy it back that. And just, it, it seems very... Um, not as transparent as blockchain, let's say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when, when you look at it, obviously coming up as a fan and then now mm -hmm. involved in it, what's your take on what potentially wasn't working and how you think you can maybe do things better? Yeah, I, I, I think it's 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 a very good question. I think it's it's also interesting to see when we were talking about monetization before artists like Bruce Springsteen selling off their selling off their catalogs today. Um, you know, just with, with how the how the world is going. You know, I think for for us sort of developing a label 360 is not really something that we really want to do per se. I mean, I think if anything, if, if we think about it, of course, you know, we want sort of our artists that we work with to work with us always, but you know, if what happens is if an artist pops off with us and becomes hugely successful and they end up, you know, going to sign with, with, with Sony RCA in the U S as a major label artist, you know, that's a huge win for us. You know, we're, we're really happy about that. I mean, to be honest, today the art—I mean, today the artists that we're working with are artists that sort of I've become friendly with over these last three to four years, and you know, are, are friends first and foremost. Um, and you know, I, we don't want to stop them from becoming 
sort of massively huge global sensations, especially considering we are we are a startup. And so, um, you know, that, that's sort of not our goal. Um, you know, we want to give artists sort of all the opportunities to, to have sort of as big a success as, as, as they can. And, and when we think about sort of the role of the label and sort of what, what we do, you know, I think the ultimate conclusion for us is, you know, we, we're starting today as, you know, a, a record label and, and music is at our core, but sort of the ultimate conclusion of our success is, um, you know, becoming a lifestyle brand in a media company, if anything, is, is sort of our, our logical conclusion. And, you know, how we see that is sort of, we look at ourselves as a platform where artists can plug into our resources. And then, you know, we can, you know, we can work with them exclusively if they want. We don't necessarily have to. Um, and as long as we can sort of allow them to have all the, the opportunities to, to monetize. And of course, you know, we, we will participate in that in, in some extent for sort of the, the, the efforts that we put in, but not limiting the artists to, to what they can, what they can do. Um, and so sort of taking a look back to answer your initial question of, you know, what, how has sort of the record label treated the artists and, you know, and especially in regards to their masters and sort of what, what does sort of the successful formula look like going forward? You know, I think Japan's an interesting example because the talent is very much pulled by the label and the agency. In, in Japan, it's it's very much a, um, as opposed to the sort of the agency sort of dictating what the, the label does, even if the label sort of provides the resources and um, and of course is, is, is taking, taking a cut and all that. Um, but I mean, I think in a sort of the world that sort of I see is that we, you know, we are a brand and platform that the artists can plug into. You know, we can provide financial resources. We also ultimately, I think what we in the long term need to trade upon is our brand. In essence, you know, at some point, you know, the Japanese labels that we're working with, they're going to say, oh, look, Frank Renaissance is doing for us. Why do we need to work with Frank Renaissance to try to sort of sort of uh, hop, hop over the pond, so to speak? Um, but we, um, you know, we ultimately, you know, our goal is to develop our positioning as a brand um, so that, you know, the reason why you work with us is that we have a brand and a captive audience that you trade upon. And so ultimately, I think. You know, it, it, to, for if, if, you know, five years from now, we are, you know, as long as we have the opportunity to help the artists monetize their masters and, and they, you know, whether we own, own the masters jointly or we don't, it is almost secondary to me as much as, you know, us being able to monetize that through sync licenses and things like that. Um, and so, you know, I think in terms of, you know, the past, you know, I think it's, it's, it's tough, especially when, you know, the labels are providing the financial resources to help help monetize and they also want to, you know, protect themselves. And especially in a world today where, you know, there, there's such a, a thin line between distribution and the artists, you know, it's, it's you can put your track on TuneCore, it's, it's on all DSPs in, in two weeks. Um, and so, you know, I, I think how, how I see it is that if, if, you know, things like blockchain can help with the transparency from the rights management side, and I think that's great. Um, you know, I think if anything, just the, the world of label changing in terms of becoming more of a marketing and media platform versus a, um, you know, purely, purely a sort of a rights management, sort of a rights management entity and a, and a financial entity. I think that's, that's where they can really add value, you know, show that they can add, add real value to the, to the artists. What's more brand than just the business, right? No, yeah, no, exactly. No. Exactly. Yeah. Did you see when, um, just recently, uh, Jack Dorsey from Square bought um, title from Jay-Z. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what were your thoughts on that of why a 
payments processing platform would mm-hmm. actually acquire a music streaming service. What was your take when you saw that news come out? As someone that's inside the music industry that understands tech, I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you had the same read on it that I do. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think, so with Square, specifically thinking about where they where they sit as a as a brand and an entity um you know it, of course it's a um it is a consumer facing brand but to a large extent it's a service that you know is for a business of course and so to be able to plug into you know that sort of um brand equity that sort of it's it's of course title isn't holding any ip there but also sort of the relationships with the artists um the captive audience and also, you know, I, I think that, you know, to be able to not only have that brand, you know, have that brand association to some extent, but also be able to, um, you know, plug into that captive audience. I mean, I think it's, especially as a brand like, as a company brand like Square, to be able to, um, you know, create create that familiar with it, familiarity with a cons- the consumer side it's extraordinarily, extraordinarily important, I think, to, to a large extent to their for their enterprise sales as well. And so, you know, I think that, you know, relationship with somebody like Title is able to help sort of push that forward. Um, you know, and also, um, I'm just trying to think. Uh, you think they're going to uh, yeah, so, they're going to take on, you think they're building something to take on the, 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 the music labels? It's a good question. Great is to go direct to consumer. Yeah, it, it's a... It's a good question. You know, I think with, with titles sort of, you know, I think in terms of the, the success of title, I think it's, it's very, uh, I think it probably depends on who you talk to, to, to a large extent. Um, you know, I think in terms of what they set out to do when, you know, all the artists sort of stood up on stage and said, we want to take our, we want to take our money back to, to a large extent and sort of where they ended up today. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, um, you know, they, they, you know, whether that was successful or not, I think is, 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 um, you know, depends on who you talk to. They were, they were not able to overtake, you know, the streaming platforms and, and things like that. But, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, I think it's similar to, to sort of digital media publications today. You know, I think the whole point of streaming, and I think it's interesting looking at the NFT publishing sort of alongside it is that, you know, the whole point of streaming is that you're able to reach a mass audience um, and that mass audience takes for granted the idea that music today is is free to them. Um, and I think with title, um, you know, they're trying to cut against this idea that that music access is is largely free today. And I think that thesis hasn't played out so well. And I think that's why, to a large extent, I'm, in, I'm intrigued by this NFT side, where you know, talking to the people who are working in this sort of NFT distribution space. Um, you know, uh, the idea is not to d- replace or displace digital streaming by any means. It's to create this sort of ancillary monetization through sort of special releases that are, um, you know, that have scarcity around them. Um, and so, you know, I think um, playing in this sort of middle middle ground of, um, you know, premium premium content for something that a lot of people consider to be free uh, or considered to be free, I think is where it's sort of the, the, the issue lied um, in, in terms of uh, title. So if, if you were a, um, if you're an artist right now in Japan mm-hmm. and um, bilingual, 
whatever, and you wanted to be the next Travis Scott, mm-hmm. up and Dre or whatever it is. Yeah. What would you do specifically in the next 12 months that you, that didn't happen 10, 20 years ago? How would you go from zero to hero? Yeah. Hey, let's say the fastest, not the quicker, like not, not the, with the best quality you know, mm-hmm. bars or whatever. Yeah. Um, what would your approach be for a young artist that wants to go from zero to a billion people in a year? I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is work with, with Frank Renaissance, of course, is the obvious answer. But, but I think, you know, I think in terms of, you know, trying to gain global, global notoriety, I think is, um, you know, I think doing collaborations with, with U.S. artists is, is big, but I think it's also really about the artists finding their, their lane um, to a large extent. You know, I think it's, um, you know, one of the artists that we're, we're starting to work with is a guy named Sick Boy, who is sort of this emo rap emo rap punk rock rap sort of low peep generation kind of artist and um you know i think that has a very clear defined audience um and you know plug you know plugging into the right sort of cultural context in the states um and globally um i think is a way to really amplify that um but i guess if i were a japanese artist today to try to if i were to go as quickly as possible I would try to figure out a way to do something with a large anime studio. Um, you know, I, th- I think that's probably the, the quickest thing, you know, especially considering that, you know, anime itself, of course, has global ubiquity. Um, and, you know, I think from a Japanese rap side of things, um, you know, there, there are, you know, Samurai Shampoo was heavily, heavily hip hop influenced back in the day. But I think, you know, that's sort of the, the most obvious sort of connection in terms of trying to get Try to get big globally. You know whether that gets you on a Coachella stage, though, is is sort of a second question, um, because I think that sort of cool context and you know what ends up on a quote unquote Coachella stage looks looks quite different. How do you think uh, after things start opening back up? Yeah. What's your prediction for the touring space? Do you think it's just going to go absolutely ballistic with everyone trying to go everywhere with as many gigs and actually potentially flood the market with too much supply? Yeah. Uh, everyone just gets many options for everything because they're going to have everyone trying to play the same dates. And do you think that, like, how do you think this starts to, you know, open back up in terms of artists trying to get their revenue? Because I'm imagining if, yeah. if you are, you know, an artist that hasn't been to your fans in over a year, all you're going to want to do is hit the road. Are we about to see a, a massive explosion in, in travel and tours and expos and carnivals and Coachella's and gigs? Yeah, and <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, I think especially i guess the the first piece is that i don't think the world opens up that quickly i guess to a large extent and so you're still going to have social uh, yeah social distancing measures social distancing measures to a large extent at um at, at a lot of these shows and so you're not going to be able to have as big of a lineup without as many artists um because you know the cash flows just don't work work that way and so but at the same time to your point there will be you know, there's a large demand both from the concert operator side as well as the performer side um, to be able to get on that concert stage. Um, and so, you know, I, and I do think that, especially considering that you need to ensure that you you sell those concerts out, especially considering that you're going to have less people there um, as sort of the given, that there will be a premium still for the most, you know, for the most high profile artists. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's it's a tough world out there for for the smaller independent artists in that sense from from a large booking standpoint because there's going to be less shows. I mean, you you really just can't get around that. Um, 
and so hence sort of these digital you know these new forms of digital monetization become more imperative so the top ones with the top brands will make the most cash and everyone else yeah. is going to be left further behind um yeah 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 i mean to, to to a large extent but at the same time you know i think the fact that this digital economy has been accelerated i wouldn't say it's matured by any means but the fact that it's been accelerated um you know does bode well for the independent artists in the long term and so i think the artists who are able to really do their homework now and i think us as a label we're still doing our homework today you know looking at you know looking at these platforms and understanding how um, how we play in them um, is is um, you know something that we're still trying to understand. Um, and so you know I think the artists do their homework will position themselves for the long term. Though now is definitely a tough time for sure. Um, I was reading one of the one of your interviews. You sure. um, had a bit of a rude awakening with the culture, with in terms of the, the New York vibe and style, in terms of negotiation, when people say no and yes with the, yeah, the way yeah. it sort of works. How has it uh, been? I guess adjusting or readjusting to uh, Japanese culture compared to American, in terms of you know you're a venture capitalist that's in the tech music culture game, but yeah. then you're in a society which is very uh, respectful and diligent and yeah. cordial and process and system. Like how, how, what's your biggest cultural learnings been from bringing your American New York jazz over to, um, <laughs> over to Japan and getting put back in check? How's that worked? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I, I do have to play a little bit of Clark Kent sometimes to some extent where, where the, you know, the suit, when the suit goes on, it's, it's one person. And when the, when the hoodie comes on, it's, it's a bit of a different person, but I think, you know, if, if anything, to be, to be perfectly honest, I think the fact that I don't look 100% Japanese, even though I speak, read, and write the language fluently, I understand the culture, is is very helpful in a lot of contexts because it isn't, I'm not supposed to know the rules um, in essence, but I do know the rules. And so, you know, I feel like I can I can play that in a large extent to my advantage. And the fact that we are young, we are a startup, it's not, you know, Warner Music in the US coming to talk with, the hip hop label, the sort of the, the small independent hip hop label looks, you know, I think it's, there's a certain level of, uh, you know, the, the expectations are set lower. So when we can sort of shoot through those, I mean, we're working with sort of the artist direction, uh, relations director at Genius um, in terms of helping book our US artists. And so, you know, in terms of US hip hop, now if the budget is there, we can, we can go all the way to the top, <laughs> um, hypothetically. And so the fact that we're able to bring some heft you know, while still being young and um, also not necessarily ha not necessarily having to, you know, follow the Japanese conventions, um, I think plays to our advantage a lot. That said, you know, things generally move slower in Japan. I mean, it's 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 consensus-driven, you know, decision-making culture, and you know, understand that we may have to pitch five or six people to get an idea across. But you know, I think because we look different, um, you know, literally in terms of the color of our face, but also the fact that we are, um, you know, we started playing with some larger names, both on the Japan side and on the US side, you know, it, it you know, it, it's, it's, you know, people have been receptive to that. And so, you know, I think there, there's definitely always learning every day. You know, I'm not, I'm not a, a record producer by training originally, you know, this is something that I've gotten into more and more as of late. And so, you know, I, th I think there, there's, there's a certain level of mutual understanding that, you know, the labels have, and, and artists on the Japan side have not done this before going overseas. 
we are, we're sort of learning as we go, but they want to do more of it from what we can tell. So um, I think it's an exciting time right now for us and, and sort of the opportunity for, for Japan is just shaping up. So when you fast forward out five, 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. next year or so we're out of the pandemic, world starts cruising around, mm-hmm. you're in startup mode back and forth yeah. here in, um, between America and Japan. Mm-hmm. What is, what do you feel success will look like for uh, Frank Renaissance in five years? Five years. Yeah. So it's how, how I see it is that we right now, are, and it's like, is it the, my VC background makes me think a little bit more like a software company, I think to some extent, are in sort of the user acquisition mode, yeah. MVP and user acquisition mode, kind of in parallel to some extent, where we're trying to prove out this model that, you know, people will pay attention in the US on this, but ultimately what we'll need to trade upon is our audience itself. You know, the fact that we, um, we are the platform, we are the media platform to sort of disseminate what's going on sort of from the ground level in sort of the the cool the cool mean streets of, of not mean streets by any means but the cool streets of, of Japan and so you know to develop that that brand equity both on the Japan side in terms of the artists that we're working with as well as the audience that we're we're sort of conveying this to both within the US on a global scale um, is what we really are trying to build out now um, and you know the ultimate conclusion you know four or five years down the road is that we are a recognizable brand within the greater music and entertainment context. And, you know, the fact that, um, you know, this sort of Japanese content is, um, you know, being disseminated to you is not, is not novel. It's part of, you know, the greater context of different, different sort of content channels that you're, you're looking at. And so, um, you know, I think sort of to, to what I said before, sort of becoming a media company to a large extent and, a, a lifestyle brand of okay, this is you know the cutting edge, cool Japan. I have an access point to this, and I and I want to know more about it. But also, you know, I've seen a lot of it already, and so it's a lot of it is new, but it's not. I'm not unfamiliar entirely, and that sort of education is sort of what would be great to get to in that sort of four or five year time frame. Now, on the other hand, entirely not from a um, from a sort of a Frank Ransom's brand side of things, but from an artist side, you know, what we're really trying to do is, you know, have, you know, both within the music industry and more broadly, you know, give Japanese artists sort of that, um, you know, that example of, of, you know, past success in essence, the fact that they see that a U.S. a Japanese artist working with us is able to gain global notoriety. um, They feel that they can do it too. And so, and, and, you know, I think the natural conclusion when we start to do more of this, the labels in Japan will also try to do it themselves. Um, and, you know, that's not something that we can, we can really prevent. Um, and that's okay with me. And, you know, maybe, you know, most, most startups fail as we, as we all, as we all know. So maybe, you know, there, there is a world where, you know, we do this and we show this example and better capitalized people come in and, and do this at a bigger scale than us. Um, but ultimately, you know, the fact that we're able to create, that you know, create sort of these case studies that this this can be done, um, and create that you know excitement and, and confidence within the Japanese artists and creative space that you know I should go do this. You know, I, why am I not doing this? Um, is really sort of from a from an emotional side of things, you know, our ultimate goal. I get it, man. Yeah. Um, it's just gonna be mixing up the 
the brand of what it builds to, but also the business of, of where yeah. it's going. Yeah. Um, really appreciate your time, uh, uh, Ren. Uh, if people want to check out um, the website, artists, bits and pieces, where can they go to? What can they do? Sure. Yeah. So uh, we're on social media, of course. So check out our Twitter and Instagram at, at Frank Renaissance. Um, we also have a monthly playlist that we put out, uh, Frank Renaissance and Friends on Spotify. Definitely check that out. You'll see a lot of the artists that we work on um there as well as sort of a lot of the um hip-hop artists in japan today um we also have a couple tracks coming out next month uh as well as more coming out within the next few months and so um you know definitely should be seeing seeing a bit more on us um we also uh just did a talk with the japan society uh, a couple uh, a couple days ago um as well which should give you a lot of the context um in terms of japanese sort of media music environment to learn more um, you can find that uh, on YouTube if you just search Frank Renaissance, it'll it'll pop up. And so, um, yeah, no, definitely, um, you'll you'll be seeing more more soon. Um, and so, uh, definitely be on the lookout. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much, friend, for joining us, man. Uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you, thank you, appreciate it. Awesome, buddy. Alrighty, have a That was a uh, Ren Stern there, Frank Renaissance. Uh, yeah, in a way, good banter with the the. The music game, uh, very interesting uh, shifts and power plays that are happening in the space. Uh, extremely cool to kind of see the the cultural angle of what it's going to look like coming from Japanese culture into America and then from America out to the rest of the world or wherever they go to. Um, the Frank uh, Renston founder, CEO, and um, in the mix at frankrenaissance.com, which you can check it out. Uh, enjoy the day, everyone, uh, and I'll talk to you soon. Uh, this has been Rebet Hollis from Rebet Live Dash Talk Radio. Uh, dash talk x dash radio see you soon